Grab your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. We, as mentioned before, are going to embark upon a three, three-week, three-part series. I'm taking three consecutive Sundays in Luke 2. And um, I'm sort of refreshing uh, some material that I've looked at in the past and preached. But Luke 2 has captivated my attention. I think it's a good time to, to anchor in and, and worship Christ. We do not want to miss the Lord Jesus Christ during Christmas, we want to focus on him of all places. This is the house of God and a place where we can worship the Lord and celebrate his birth and coming because we are saved because of Christ. And I, I want to just encourage us to worship the most improbable king. That's the title of this, this morning's sermon, the most improbable king. I want us to worship this king. In, our, in my lifetime, the last four presidents, which are not kings in our democracy, but they are figureheads of, of leadership and power, they've marked some of the most dramatic political shifts in political platforms that I've ever seen and encountered. If you think of especially our last two presidents, uh, the prior president to our current one, there's just a dramatic shift Whatever you think about these things, you, it's, it's unmistakably turbulent, and it's turbulent in Congress. If you turn on the news, there are votes going on. There's dialogue going on. There are people who are, who are raising issues and even upset in tempestuous ways, and people are polarized, and they're voting at the highest levels about this high office of presidency, and it, it is something that we have to consider to to think about it seems like the country's business is put on the background but it's still still ongoing things seem fine but not fine at the same time so are you surprised that our world is turbulent are you surprised as a christian that it is tempestuous are you surprised that there is a a downward moral slide that is a sort of happening by handfuls in front of our eyes does this surprise us second timothy 3 1 says but understand this in the last days there will come times of difficulty and in the church that's true too second timothy 3 12 and 13 indeed all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever, since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In our geopolitical climate, in our church climate, in our just daily environment, how are we responding? Our response, the way that we receive these things that we are not in control of, determines our witness, does it not? How we handle these things. We live in a world of, that's a kingdom that in a lot of ways seems to be crumbling. And yet we have a kingdom that rules over all, Right? There's a two-kingdom mindset that every Christian must grasp with, must grab onto. We have the kingdom of God in our hearts. Has the kingdom come? Yes. Yes, the king has come, and he's come in our hearts, right? And guess what? He's coming again. And he's ruling and reigning now. 
from the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is ruling and reigning. He is our sovereign king. And our response to a world that seems like it's shaking and baking and rocking and rolling, uh, it, it matters. It's the litmus test to how we're doing spiritually and how we're communicating and carrying on the mission of Christ in the world. The kingdom is one that we should pray for. We should pray for this earthly kingdom, right? The king's hearts uh, are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Proverbs 21.1, he turns it wherever he will. We're, we're called to pray for our governing authorities, for kings, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, who are in high positions. Um, all of those people in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, living godly in a dignified way. We're, we're to put pedal to the metal and pray harder when we see things happening in our world, right? This, this, is, this is not us whispering manipulative um, words into the ear of politicians through our prayers. We, we're not manipulating anything. We are symbolizing through our prayers, our humble dependence on God who is sovereign over all things. We are recognizing that we can't change anything, but prayer is powerful and God can change everything. And so he uses our prayers within his sovereign rule to bring about his sovereign ends. And we pray for governing authorities. We submit to them, Romans 13, 1. There's no authority except from God. They exist because they were instituted by God. We strike this posture of dependence in humility to a higher king as we watch the higher king influencing through his sovereign allowance of world events all around us. We might not know why certain leaders are in power, certain leaders rise, certain leaders fall, certain enemies are threats and certain enemies crumble and fall. We, we don't know exactly how things are to be, but we know that we serve a king that is over it all. Um, Psalm 103, God's sovereignty rules over all because he sits in the heavens. Luke 2 is an amazing story about two kingdoms, two worlds converging, two kingdoms colliding. We have God's will on earth, but we have heaven coming down to earth to fulfill it all. It's amazing. We have Two rulers that are on display. We have Caesar Augustus that we're going to look at with some detail. And then we have a humble king who is an intervention into a world that's set on edge 2,000 years ago. This should give us a, a paradigm, a picture of how to respond to our world today as we worship this same humble king. God who became man fully flesh fully God at the same time. He's our king. Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. He is in charge of everything. His kingdom has come down to earth. His promise will be fulfilled and he will make all things right. No one can overthrow him, though the Jews wanted Jesus to be this overthrowing worldly ruler to overthrow Rome. This kind of kingdom that has come in Christ is what some people call the upside down kingdom. It's, it's sort of the surprise kingdom that came with a baby born in the most obscure place on the planet to solve the greatest problem that our world is really facing, which is the problem of sin. Solving sin, not glossing with political movements, but solving the heart, answering the real germ that's the issue in our world with the cross. 
came 2,000 years ago. And amazingly, we as the church play a strategic, now let me restate that, we play the strategic role on earth as we are the the pilgrims in this world, exiles in this world, strangers to a land, carrying on Christ's mission on behalf of him. We are his body. He is the head. We are the witnesses. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are the mercy givers in the name of Christ. We are the ones who herald the truth in a world of darkness with lies. We are the one who carries the mission of the gospel to solve the world's greatest problem, which is sin and lust. We're the ones who know the promises of God. We know the end of the story and we know that the devil is ultimately going to be cast in hell forever. So this is what Luke 2 awakens for us where we see two kingdoms converging. Luke 2, 1 to 7 is where we're going to begin this series. It displays two kingdoms converging by comparing two leaders who are absolute opposites. Two leaders who are absolute opposites. You have a secular king, that, and that's what we'll begin with. The secular king, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, verses 1 to 5. It says... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This king was politically dominant. This king set the world in motion. That's what he did with a word, with a decree, a dominant ruler in the known, especially Roman Empire and It was a progressed empire that was covering a lot of the known world. Caesar Augustus was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, Caesar Augustus, which was also, he was also named Octavian. He gained in an instant all the possessions of Julius Caesar because they had been willed to him. So he came to power and he came powerfully with all kinds of wealth, wielding all of Julius Caesar's power, putting the world in motion. And he was also no sort of shrinking lily of a personality. He was a fighter. He had clawed his way to power, defeating Cleopatra. He he had defeated Mark Antony. He was ushering in what was called the Peace of Rome or what the Latin phrase Pax Romana stands for. This was not some sort of happy peace. This was a tense Peace. It was tension-filled political environment peace. It was what was called a Hitler's peace. Don't mess with Rome or you're going to lose your peace. Peace. You got it? Things were icy. Things were frosty. It was a forced submission for good reform of the worst corruption. So he was this kind of leader politically dominant, but he was also religiously blasphemous. He was an ego of egos. Caesar Augustus, he's called Augustus because he wanted to be worshipped. The word August or Augustus means to be revered as holy, as a God. He saw himself as the highest priest, calling himself the Pontifex Maximus. That's who this guy was. And that's why Luke, the Gentile writer, writes that with great detail, Caesar Augustus. There was a plaque of old that illustrates this. It's an ancient plaque that said, quote, divine Augustus Caesar, imperator of land and sea, benefactor, 
and savior of the world, benefactor, like the give the giving of life to the world, ascending to new heights. It was turning his office religious and this religious mix of this odd ruler of greed, power, money, wealth, and spirituality. It was leading him to be, prop himself to be worshiped. So he was not only religiously blasphemous, he was strategically greedy. His plan, his plan to call for the census where it says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This registration was him finding out how much he could tax everybody. How much money could he bilk from the system? How much power could he flex? So ultimately he could grow his military ranks and suppress any kind of subversion by taxing the masses, by keeping them under his thumb. So this is the scene of Luke chapter two. And look at verse two. This was the first registration when Quirinius, a co-leader, was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of, of David. The reason I just read that portion of scripture is to show you the contrast in kingdoms. You have Caesar Augustus who could not be any more the picture of a person who's here, who has ultimate power. And yet in the midst of someone who's raised up in ultimate power politically, you have God who is overruling all of this power and actually intervening and manifesting his kingdom through the events that are happening in world history. This is so important to us in terms of our focus and how we grid America. How do you understand our world? Are we just victims? Are we just getting tossed to and fro by the wind and waves of emotion and the roller coaster ride of, oh, this is happening and that is happening and this is happening and that is happening? Or do we rest in the confidence that God's kingdom is ruling over all things? And if things are getting more turbulent and more worse, that could mean, and it does mean, that we are one day closer to Christ Jesus' return, right? Things are supposed to get worse before Christ comes back. And we need to want the upside down kingdom. We want a world that's not ruled by political dominance from the flesh, from political measures and power. We want our confidence to be in the ultimate sovereign king who rules in our hearts, who's manifest as we gather as the church, ruling our lives together. So look how God's upside down kingdom works. It's amazing. Verse one, you have Augustus who's putting all the world in motion, the whole world. And then verse two, a registration and it's connecting with the governor Quirinius in Syria. And then you have verse three to be registered each from his own town. So this political strategy is, is put in place by Augustus own town. But then you have Joseph, an obscure carpenter who went up from Galilee So you have things narrowing in, funneling in from the world, from each person to register in his own town. Then verse four, from Galilee, who's from the town of Nazareth, who's from the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who's with child. How how does this happen? It's amazing. You have Augustus who thinks he's setting the world in motion and God is working out his perfect prophetic 
plan for the son of God to be born in verse four, Bethlehem. This is all to fulfill a prophecy. Micah 5, 2 is what I read earlier out of Micah verses 5, verses 1 to 5. But listen to this again. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This place was not on the map. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler, be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. It's incredible. It's incredible. Joseph who grew up in Nazareth. He had to return to his ancestral town, verse three, to be counted. Who's Joseph? Well, Joseph is as famous as we know him to be just from scripture. Otherwise, we don't know anything about Joseph. We just know that he was obedient and he went to his obscure town, Bethlehem. It's where David, King David, so many years before had been anointed, 1,025 years um, BC was where David was anointed in this town in Bethlehem under, under his father, Jesse. You have uh, the prophet who came, Samuel, who anointed him. It's amazing. This was where Jesus was also to be born. I love the way Kent Hughes, this, um, I love him as a, a, a writer, especially, he captures the sovereignty of God and the, the, the humanity, um, the, you know, the, the free will of man in a beautiful way. Listen to this. It says, Mary and Joseph appear to be helpless pawns caught in the moments of secular history. But every move was under the hand of Almighty God. The Messiah would indeed be born in tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. As the virgin traveled, her steady beating heart, hidden from the world, kept time with the busily thumping heart of God. Mary, she traveled with Joseph in submission, in humility. The baby was going to come early, but she didn't know that. Traveling along with her husband, doing what was right as she was betrothed to him. And all of this was happening in perfect time and in perfect keeping with God's sovereign plan. Look at verse six. And while they were there, do you see that? The perfect time of God, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. You know, Caesar Augustus might seem strong. World leaders might seem strong in our day, but really everything is under the sovereign plan of God. Do we understand that? Do you understand that your boss or your leader, whoever's in charge of you, your home life, your home situation, do you realize God is in charge of all of that? He is sovereign. He rules over all things. Psalm 2 has God laughing at kingdoms that come against him. The Lord sits in the heavens and, and laughs. He laughs because he is in charge. He has you right where you are supposed to be in the circumstances that you are supposed to be in for his purposes. And sometimes we see those purposes working out. Sometimes we understand them and go, oh, that's why I was supposed to be there at this time. And oftentimes we have no idea. 
Joseph and Mary were just carrying out what they believed to be obedience under a corrupt world leader doing what they were doing. And then you have all of this prophecy, all of this fulfillment from Micah, from, from David, who was anointed in Bethlehem to everything converging in obscurity in this upside down kingdom. Let's learn about not only a secular king, but a sacred king from verses six to seven. He was on time. It was while they were there. He's called the firstborn son He wasn't the first son to ever be born. We obviously know that, but firstborn is the rightful heir. It's the person who has the heir to the throne. He was the humble king. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was laid in a manger, verse seven says. So what does this mean? What does this mean in terms of our sacred king? What does this mean? I want to read to you from... um, a section from a book called God With Us. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ next to his crucifixion was the most momentous event in the history of the world. It became the focal point of all history. Everything before Christ looked forward to his birth and everything since then looks back to him. It was such a crucial event that now all the world numbers years according to it. B.C. means before Christ and A.D. means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Now, our culture is trying to switch that up, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Everybody's thinking that? It's true. This is an old book, but it's still good. Jesus made an impact on the world that has never been and never will be equaled by any mere man in all the annals of the human race. No one is like him. He never wrote a book. He never held political power. He was not wealthy or particularly influential in his lifetime, yet he altered the world completely. In fact, no other human being has affected history remotely like he has. He's been opposed, hated, fought, censored, banned, and criticized in every generation since his birth. Yet his influence continues unabated. After nearly 2,000 years, the impact of his life goes on so powerfully that it is safe to say not a day passes that the lives, that lives are revolutionized by his teaching. We're always revolutionized by his teaching. And let me just remind you, we carry the mission of Christ on today. I think a lot of times we think that our lives and lifetimes are filled with just kind of keeping up, right? You're just trying to make it day to day. You're just trying to fulfill your job jar, your life mission, your, your this, your that. But in the midst of that, God is using you powerfully. Some of having the college kids home from college or people visiting, you see the fruit of the labor of investment, whether you were a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker, in ministry together, on a missions team together, part of Grace Christian School together, whatever you did to impact in an intersecting way as a parent or grandparent or spiritual grandparent or spiritual parent, there is a history and legacy of the kingdom being advanced. It seems obscure. It seems insignificant. You might not have uh, trophies, by, you know, or accolades or, or bells and whistles be behind what you think you are doing, but we are Christ emissaries. We are on this mission, carrying forth the word of life here. We do it by example. We do it by just showing up, by just opening our Bibles, by just worshiping the Lord together. 
On Friday night, we had a movie night here, and we watched, uh, you know, the the Christmas story by movie. But I also was put up here on stage. It wasn't something that I had asked to do, um, but I was put up there and was sat in an easy chair with a little light, and it was a carpet. And there were some 25, 30 kids that gathered around kind of in a living room type setting. And I read from Luke's gospel, chapter 2, and read the story. And it's the word of God going out. But what was so significant to me is all the young kids that are represented here in our church. This is the history of the church that will outlive us unless the Lord comes back before then. This is the investment. This is the work of the ministry in a secular kingdom that props itself up. I love the fact that the news media in this last presidency, much of the bluff has been called, right, out loud. I I just enjoy that. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it just shows that God's work and God's will is so much more superior than political agendas. God is working. Even no matter what happens, if the church begins to be aggressively persecuted, we'll see fruit from that. We will. And so God is in charge. His sovereignty is at work. He's ruling. This promise is being fulfilled all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9. You might turn there. 9 verse 6, 600 years before this event in Luke chapter 2, Isaiah said, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, who would be willing to admit that they, they sang that in their mind as I was saying that, right? You, you hear Handel's Messiah, you know, and you, you, that, that is an amazing lyric and, and musical presentation. I love to hear it. I love to just worship the Lord through that. At the same time, This is the truth and theology that must bookend our mindset in terms of how we think about our world. A child has been born, a son has been given, and he's come once, but guess what? He's coming again. He will be the ultimate leader here on earth during the millennial kingdom. He will be. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where he rules and reigns as the sovereign king. This humble Christ who was laid in a manger where there was no place at all for them in the end. This one who was put in a feeding trough in swaddling cloths. This baby is our God. Isn't that amazing? That first coming vindicates and verifies the promise of his second coming. It's the ultimate convergence of heaven and earth, our sovereign king. It's eternity meeting with what is temporal. Isaiah 9, 6 is amazing. It speaks of a child being born. It emphasizes Christ's humanity. Christ faced all temptation, yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He, uh, he never sinned. A son was given, Isaiah 9, 6 says, meaning he's God. He's God's pre-existent, he's son of God. He's the pre-existent one, the second member of the Trinity. John 1, 1 and 2 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Turn over for a second to Hebrews chapter one. I know we've been in Hebrews, but I wanna go all the way back to the beginning. If you look at verse six, it says, 
Well, in verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him of the angels. He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse eight. Compared to all the angels, compared to everything visible, invisible, thrones, rulers, authorities, powers, everything bows in submission to this one, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The cults miss this. They come to your door. I don't like them to come to my door. I I don't really give a greeting. I'm not someone who invites them in and talks and tries to evangelize. It to me is like talking to satanic, um, you know, missionaries. Hate to say it that strongly, but it's, it's false teaching that you have to be warned from. The number one distinction between a cult and something that is false and true is what you do with the son of God. Do you believe that the son of God is the one for whom you've given your life? No matter anything else, it's the son of God who rules and reigns in our hearts, in the kingdom, in our hearts that's come today. It's the son of God, your leader, your Lord, the one that you love, who loves you most of all. You know, he's God. You know he's God. Why? By faith, by reading scripture, you know he's God. This is the discernment between what is true and what is false that comes to your door. You know he's God. Don't let anyone take you in a direction away from that truth and conviction. That's what Christmas is all about. When we hear Handel's Messiah in the mall, you know, I hope I don't end up in a mall anytime soon, but... But when you hear that, I will somehow, somewhere I'll be there and be going, oh, well, here I am. We know the deeper conviction behind those lyrics is the truth of Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. So where's the kingdom now? We have a world that's filled with turbulence. Where's the one who came so long ago? Well, he's at the right hand of the father but he's here with us in our hearts. And as we gather, he's the head of the church. Do you believe it? As we gather locally, he's manifest. One day he'll be manifest universally. The difference between any king, any ruler, anyone who props himself up or herself as a demigod in this world and our true king as we worship him. Do not worship man. Do not worship a woman. Do not worship an ideology. We pray for our governing authorities. We submit to our governing authorities. We know they're instituted by God. We serve the king of kings who is the great king of kings, the only king of kings. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our Christ. He's wonderful. He is our counselor. He's mighty. He's everlasting as our father. And he's also the prince of peace. 
Do you want to worship Christ? We all should want to worship him. He is our king. 